Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic podcast. I am Justin here with my co-host Mitchell. Say hello, Mitchell. Hello, Mitchell. And today we are joined by a very special guest, actor, producer, director, and all-around chatterbox, Mr. Nicholas Vince. <laughs> Nicholas, how the hell are you? Well, when I stopped giggling because I knew Mitchell was going to say hello, Mitchell, I... <laughs> I'm very well, obviously. I'm very well. Thank you very much. Like I said before we started, man, thank you for giving us some of your time. So I guess to get started here, take us back in time. What sort of films and fiction were you consuming as a child to kind of get the juices flowing back then? Well, funnily enough, I've just been, I've literally just I pressed stop on a documentary on the film 2001, um, A Space Odyssey, and realized I was about 11 years old when I first went to see that in the cinema. I remember very excitedly saving pocket money up and going by myself and you know, I grew up in a small town in Sussex and you could do that 11 years old, you know, just say, I'm going to the cinema and take yourself there. And I don't think I got to the very end. I've just found that film so boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't know where you were going with that. It's a slow burn for sure. <laughs> it's so boring. Oh my God, it's nearly too, you know, for an 11 year old who obviously no one even thought about life's greatest Star Wars mystery. Or lightsaber <laughs> or anything like, you know, I thought science fiction for me was Doctor Who. So definitely watch Doctor Who from behind the sofa because the Daleks were so scary. Um, so I'm talking about really young or sitting on the sofa with a cushion on my lap so that I could cover my face if things got too scary on this on TV. So I was kind of fascinated and repelled. And then kind of in my teens, then I got to watch, got to watch the universal horror, you know, monster movies, Frankenstein, etc. But I was always re I was re reading ghost stories a lot, short stories, love short stories, reading H.H. Munro, Saki, because he wrote basically short stories that are half a dozen pages long because they were designed mm -hmm. for newspaper articles. But they're incredibly intense and in very clever. Shredni Vashtar is one of my favorite short stories of all time. So yeah, that's kind of my background as far as interest is concerned. Do you prefer short stories? Yeah. <laughs> Do I prefer short stories? Honestly, I don't get much time to read just for fun. Right. So I tend to read late at night as a way of kind of shutting down for the day and going to sleep. And honestly, I tend to reread Terry Pratchett books because I know they're not going to, you know, it's like, don't get me I love, obviously, I love Clive Barker's writing. And I have mm -hmm. to read that during the day just so I can concentrate properly. <laughs> yeah. And I know I'm not going to get too scared right. to be able to go to sleep. <laughs> It's funny hearing you say that. <laughs> oh my God, that character is terrifying. That's me. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Anybody who knows me as knows what a great wuss I am. I, you know, my problem is I get very involved in things that I'm watching or reading. I am completely suggestible. I am the person if you if I'm watching Big Dipper, you know, the, the things fairground. Mm. 
uh, ride thing. I will be sitting in my seat, swaying and moving backwards and forwards because it's real as far as I'm concerned. And I, you know. So do you recall a Eureka moment where you finally decided to give acting thing a try? Were you in drama or anything when you were younger? Yes. I mean, uh, bottom line, I was always a show off. Um, <laughs> I did a lot. I mean, I really primary school onwards, you know, so I'm like six, seven, eight years old. Mm. I'm doing Christmas. I'm doing the Christmas nativity play. When I'm 11, my English teacher, a lady called Mary Salomon, she invited me to join the local amateur society in Horsham, the Horsham Amateur Theatre 48. Um, Theatre 48 is what they, because they were formed in 1948, long time before I, actually not that long before I was born, <laughs> come to think of it. Anyway, Theatre 48, every chance I got from the age of 11 onwards, I was always doing at least two or three productions a year. Amateurs, literally every, every constantly, constantly. Well, the great thing, I mean, the thing is, I was a young man who was interested in doing drama and then not that many of us around. And I grew up in, a, as I say, uh, West Sussex uh, in England. And certainly when I was in my teens, sorry, when I was in my teens, there were more amateur societies in West Sussex than any other county in the United Kingdom. So every village, lots of villages in Sussex, and most of them had their own amateur society. And then, you know, you just got invited to go along because you're the young man who was interested in drama. Did a lot. Did you have any favorite roles to play? Two I remember most clearly were, or three, yeah, I mean, I did, I played all the young, well, as I say, when I was 11, they were doing a Christmas entertainment based on the work of Charles Dickens. So I got to play all the boys in Charlie, you know, Pip and Great Expectations and so on. I remember that one very clearly. I remember I played a really small part in a play about Henry VIII and one of the wives, I was a page and I had to go walk in and say make way for the king and take my hat off <laughs> do a big flourishy bow and I think I got a write-up in the local paper saying Nicholas Vint spoke his lines very clearly <laughs> local paper that's what you do is you know you praise all the actors and say they spoke their lines very and I think yeah and then there was a I'm trying to remember there was another I can't remember the name of the play but there was yeah there were a couple of other, other parts yeah very fun <laughs> had so much fun so correct me if I'm wrong here Nicholas but it looks like that your role as the chair was your first professional gig is that true how did that come about it was my first film sure, i'd done gotcha. theater i'd already got because in those days you couldn't do film without having an actor's equity card um it was a closed shop so i had done theater work in order to get my equity card to do that so yeah chatterer was my first film work was it a typical audition and you got the role no no um i knew clive i'd been modeling clive barker this is um i had been modeling for Clive for about, I've known him for about three years. So Clive, I don't know, you're familiar with his Books of Blood, the short stories? Yes. Lots <laughs> of modding heads, yeah. yeah. Okay, so in the UK, they were published in paperback and then they were published in six volumes in paperback and then they were published in hardback because the paperbacks did so well. They then went out. So it was odd, that's the reverse way of doing it. Normally you do the hardback first and then you do paperback. And Clive painted the covers of the books of blood so he i modeled for some of those there are i i appear in various forms i'm volume one <laughs> up there stripped to the waist holding up a photograph of clive with a knife sticking out of my head uh <laughs> 
wow, this is blowing my mind. Like, so you were, <laughs> you're, you're like deep in the Hellraiser lore. Like you're like even beyond the movie. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I think this is the great thing that when we did Hellraiser, Clive involved all his mates, basically. Now, Doug Bradley, obviously they were at school together. Mm-hmm. And Doug and then Clive since, uh, or he, you know, they'd known each other since they were teenagers. And then Doug joined Clive for the theater group that Clive created called The Dog Company. Simon Bamford, who plays Butterball and Hellraiser, Simon and I were at drama school together. And Simon went off to join The Dog Company uh, as an actor. And so he'd already worked with Doug and so on. And then I basically just met Clive at a party. I'm pretty certain it's most likely that Simon would have invited me to a party. And that's where I met Clive. Because basically Clive lived near the drama school I studied. You know, Hellraiser is one of those staple franchises with Halloween, Friday the 13th and all those. Mm. So when you guys are there in the moment filming, did you have any inkling what it was going to become? Could you feel it in the air? No, I think what we did feel was that it was unusual um, the line I always use is, no teenagers were harmed in the making of this movie, <laughs> which is very different to all the stalk and slash. And I, I have nothing against stalk and slash films, but yeah, yeah. staple of horror movies in those days, starting with a great Friday the um, Nightmare on Elm Street, is stalk and slash. I think, you know, the costumes are amazing. The look was amazing. Nothing, you know, there was nothing that you could really point to, well, particularly not in the UK. I mean, there's a really small film industry in the UK that was like it. No, that we knew, that I would still be talking about this, what, nearly 35 years later. Extraordinary. Yeah, no, that is extraordinary to me. Like we just mentioned those other slashers, Hellraiser is a bit different. Not that there's anything wrong with slasher movies, but the subtext and plot of Hellraiser is a bit more deep than your typical slasher, I would say, you know? Yeah, it definitely is. Not to, you know, piss anybody off out there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Well, you know, we're just saying there's, you know, a plot. is that and the fact that it's about adults rather than teenagers right you know it, it's you know it's it's adults who are giving into their and there's you know it's the i was watching what was i watching the other day i was watching chopping mall uh mm. the other day because i was interviewing barbara crampton uh, on my show and i thought yeah this is purely purely has every single trope if you have sex you are going to die if you're a virgin, you live at the end of the movie. I suppose that is true of Hellraiser, assuming that Kirsty is still a virgin at the end of the movie. <laughs> you know, but yeah. <laughs> Maybe there was a deleted scene somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, the boyfriend definitely is sleeping on the floor um, in, in, in that movie. So, no. so Clive, that's just his MO, I would guess. Like he just kept all of you guys on for the first, second film and then Nightbreed, same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Because of course he didn't direct Night uh, sorry, he didn't direct Hellbound, Hellraiser 2 because he was preparing for Nightbreed. Just kind of phoned up and just said, you know, Nick, would you like to be in Nightbreed 2? I've got a I've got a part for you. Because yeah, I'd love to. And you mean I get lines you mean i get to see (laughs) (laughs) oh hell yeah i'm in i'm in yeah so out of those two roles which one were you spending more time and makeup for funnily enough in order to be prepared kinski in nightbreed it was five hours because that was seven different pieces uh, that were glued to my face um so that was makeup chair at four o'clock in the morning after having got to pinewood so basically the car would pick me up at three o'clock in the morning in the chair for four o'clock in the morning and then on set at nine usually without eating because that would muck up the makeup and then yeah but i you know i say all that 
it's tough on the actors. But all we have to do is stay still and stay awake. We're not the people who are actually applying the makeup, who are on their feet all that time and so on. So, you know, it's huge kudos to Neil Gorton and Mark Coulier, who, you know, actually created Kinsky for that. Going back to the amount of time I was actually left in the makeup, Hellraiser. I, I There were a couple of eight-hour days where I was left in the makeup and wasn't filmed <laughs> around because I was used to get us ready in the morning. This is for my death scene uh, in Hellraiser. I remember we just never quite got to the end where we were being filmed. Right. Um, for a couple of days where I was just left in makeup for eight hours. It's like, oh, God. I was getting paid. I was getting overtime. It wasn't the end of the world at all. That's funny because Tom Noonan said something similar about his uh, Frankenstein makeup on Monster Squad that it would take so long that some nights he would just drive home to his apartment in his Frankenstein costume and he actually got pulled over <laughs> one time in his Frankenstein costume. Yeah, this is something I learned about, I only learned recently about Boris Karloff was that often they just didn't take him out of the makeup. And oh, they just know that. propped him up against a wall and let him sleep. <laughs> and then started the next... Because it would take so long to put on, like, take so long to get off. Right. I mean, you know, as it is five hours into the Kinski makeup, and for any mate, you know, basically any prosthetic makeup where you've got looks of pieces, it took an hour to take it off. So very long days all, all around. Of course, I, Kinski, um, sorry, Chatterer, was much easier in terms of actually getting into makeup and costume. That was only an hour to get in because the chatter and makeup was literally just the chattering teeth, then the mask over the top, uh, plus a bald cap to keep my hair down. So yeah, um, there's the things. But hey, I could hear, speak, and see when I was wearing Kinski. I really didn't care. That's a plus. <laughs> yeah. And you look back on the cast of Nightbreed is pretty nuts. You know, you got yourself, Clive, and you know Doug Bradley's playing like the Monster Moses, Craig <laughs> Sheffer, David Cronenberg's in that movie. He's a serial killer therapist, which is nuts. So what was your <laughs> what was your experience like on set filming with all those people and all the stuff going on? It was fun because I think I got I didn't have any scenes with Danny David Cronenberg, so uh, I kind of got to meet him once. Hi, I'm Nick. <laughs> so that was it. Uh, although I do remember standing in the corridor in Pinewood Studios with Pete Atkins, uh, who went on to write uh, Hellbound and um, a few other, and Hellraiser Three as well, um, and is a, a screenwriter over in America now. A great friend again from Clive School and Dog Company days. Pete Atkins uh, was mate uh, by that type stage and just saying Nick. We're in the corridor at Pinewood. Come listen, come listen. <laughs> Walking up to this office door, and I can just hear a manual typewriter through the office door, and it's David Cronenberg typing up the screenplay to Naked Lunch. <laughs> it's like, oh, great, that's pretty cool. What was the experience like? Well, they, they were great. I became fast friends with Anne Bobby, who plays Laurie. I saw Craig Sheffer and a bit. Uh, in fact, when we finished Nightbreed, I used the money to travel to America for the first time and ended up in Los Angeles and ended up on Venice Beach. And I was there with a, a girlfriend from drama school uh, in the UK who'd moved out there and got married and so on. And we were walking down the street and I was just like walking along the beach in Venice Beach and I was saying to my mate, to Holly, it's like, it's, I know what's really weird about now is like I'm walking down the street and nobody's saying my name that was calling out to me. I really do feel a stranger here because I was used to living in London and a place where I'd be you know, either at home where I grew up or in London drama school. So, you know, you're always bumping into somebody and you literally just the words left my lips. I heard somebody saying, hey, Nick, and it's Craig Sheffer. 
just <laughs> happens to be on the beach that day with a bunch of mates. So uh, yeah, so yeah, met Craig and so on. I, was, I think what really impressed me was just the size of the sets on Nightbreed because of when we made Hellraiser, we were either on location and the house. Mm-hmm. Or in a really tiny, you know, really, really small studio called the Production Village. So, I mean, the size of the studio wasn't much bigger than the size of the torture room where Frank does his reappearing in Hellraiser. That was the studio itself wasn't much bigger than that room. And then we go to Pinewood and you've got three story sets for the entire wow. side of Midian and so on. It's, you know, extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. So that, and you know, the scale of it was so much bigger. And that's where we got, you know, so from a crew and of, of image animation, I'm guessing there are about a dozen of them, suddenly around about 30 odd makeup artists and all these models, yeah. all these people being involved. It was just a huge production. I was going to ask you that because one of the things that sticks out about Nightbreed is just the amount of monsters, like cool looking monsters that are in mm. there. It's, it's an army of monsters. There has to be, had to be a lot of makeup artists, mm. tired makeup artists on that movie. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and you know that's where a lot of makeup artists, you know, working to, as I say, Neil Gorton who did Kinski and Mark Coulier. Well, Mark's got a couple of Oscars to his name now for makeup, and Neil has gone on to create his own effects company and did all the makeups, special effects makeups for the new Doctor Who, uh, you know, TV series has been running for a few years now, now starting with Christopher Eccleston. So you know, many of the people and. even now when I do small independent films, there are a couple of occasions where I've bumped, you know, gone onto set and said, I'm there. nice to see you. I, you probably don't remember me, but I was working on Nightbreed in makeup art, you know, then. So, you know, a lot of people started up around about that time. There's a whole generation of people. Awesome. You just mentioned indie horror scene, and I wanted mm. to ask you about the indie horror scene in the UK. Obviously, I'm from the United States, never been to the UK, but right. I would imagine that the, given the history of horror in the region being the birthplace of Hammer, I would imagine that it's a mm. very strong indie scene over there. It's interesting. I think there is, there are, I mean, there's an awful lot of people. I think I regularly, um, each year we have a five-day horror festival, horror film festival in the West End of London called Fright Fest, uh, which I've been going to a few years now and meeting a lot of UK independent filmmakers, quite a few people there. But you're talking about, I think there is one company in particular that immediately springs to mind that is like horror and that's Hex Media or Hex Studio, Hex Studios, who I, um, I did the who, who did the unkindness of ravens and and many others the black gloves I was in and they done anthology films and so on you know they really are a studio a, a proper studio and it's really small it's a really small independent studio based out of a church up in Scotland but they are responsible for creating their own material you know they work internationally with producers and so on and they do their own distribution they do their own creating dvds and so on so there are and then there's you know other companies that i've worked uh, on uh, book of monsters with stuart and paul and so on there's some really talented independent katie bonham mark a whole load of people who I don't really want to mention lots of names. Going to I'll forget somebody. <laughs> They'll hate me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, you're absolutely right. There, there are. I think again, I was talking to Ron guests on my show, and just saying it was Barbara Crampton. In fact, when she was saying when she returned to acting, she was amazed at the fact that people are not just actors; they're not just writers or producers or 
directors, they do everything. Like I'm talking to John Harrison, who worked with George Romero on uh, Creepshow and so on. You know, George really, George Romero was, to me, is the ultimate independent filmmaker. Agreed. Yeah. You know, he'd do sound, he'd do lighting, he'd do everything. Mm-hmm. And I think this is what I, you know, I find quite extraordinary is that the fact and of course now that's even easier because it's the technology is a lot more accessible when you're not having to deal with film you can just you know everything is done digitally you put it onto your computer you can anyway it's even you know da vinci resolve you can actually edit and colorize your film for free you don't have to be shelling out large amounts of money and there are plenty of free screenwriting apps and so on so yeah, I think there has been a democratization of the filmmaking process. Uh, so, yeah, there are some really good film, independent filmmakers in the country. Anthony House is another one. Yeah, I'm just going to forget. <laughs> just done a couple of films with him. <laughs> Two, three. I keep, I'm losing count now. Yeah, done a couple of films recently with Anthony. Are you familiar with George Romero Jr.'s work, his son? I'm not. Which is shame on me because I was talking to his, I was talking to uh, Suzanne Roger, uh, George's widow. And that didn't come up. No, I'm not familiar with his work at all. <laughs> when we get out of here, you should look up his son. His son is uh, George Romero Jr. and he runs a film production company called the Indie Brigade, and he's basically just following in his dad's footsteps, making indie horror films. Oh wow. Yeah, he's the man. I'm I'm probably going to have him on soon, so that might be somebody you would, you would like to reach out to too and just talk to him about his dad, you know? Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. No, I'd not come across. He's very accessible. I'm sure he'd love to talk to you. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. So in 2016, you directed a short called The Night Whispered. Mm. Was that your first time stepping behind the camera? It was. That's right. I do keep on hesitating every so often just because of my old age. I think, am I saying something stupid now because I've forgotten something? No, it was. <laughs> Definitely it was. <laughs> and that came out of my previous YouTube show because um, the current show is called The Chattering Hour. Uh, and then the previous one was called Chattering with Nicholas Vince. This, now, these days I'm talking to really established people who've had long careers for for 40 odd years previously i was concentrating on independent filmmaking um and that really came out of having chatted with well basically when i first started going to fright fast because i returned to i took a long break away from acting and then didn't return until 2012 and then suddenly people started be asking me to be in their films and to do their short films and as i met quite a few of them through fright fast and they are just really really talented people and I thought this is fun this is great and I was chatting to them and I thought I really should have a go at this it's something I really you know really would like to do and have a go so yeah that's how the night whispered came about again just basically asking people for favors and uh, and so on and making it and doing and and filming on what turned out to be the coldest night of the year because basically it was 10 degrees celsius kind of where we are kind of autumn weather we were filming in november wasn't too bad i was 10 degrees celsius or 50 about 50 fahrenheit something like that not bad at all the night we filmed it dropped to zero literally just that night it dropped to zero degrees celsius so all the fact that everyone is wrapped up really warm and the act you can see all the actors breath frosting that's not special effects. <laughs> it's cold. So cold. All natural. It was just so cold. <laughs> even my dog, even my dog, who was who's, who's got a part in the film, it, he ah oh, 
bless him, we were wrapping up in blankets, in a in hot water bottles. At one point, my husband was lying on top of him just to keep him warm. <laughs> just so he wasn't, because he's so short. Bless the little cock. You did very, very well in the movie. I know you have an origin story that you wrote yourself for the chatter, and mm. I don't want you to spoil mm. it too much, but can you give us a little, some hints? <laughs> Gosh, yeah, it's really how do I say, yeah, kind of it's kind of set in a mythical kind of turn of last century, so around about 1890. It's kind of set in America in that kind of era. It's not specific, it's it's like that. And I think what I do remember is when I showed it to the editor, I sent it across to the editor, he said, Oh god, he said. I'm finding this really disturbing. <laughs> I'm going to publish it, but it's really That's disturbing. Good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, as already said, it's really disturbing. That's a good thing. Yeah, I, it's, I, it's funny enough. It's the second origin story I wrote for the chatter. The first one I wrote when we were when they released Hellbound, I was invited by a magazine called Fear to write a short story and that was kind of just a piss take and the fact that I was I was very upset by the fact that I didn't get to have my face seen at the end of the of the second movie what do you mean you're making me into a child <laughs> <laughs> I thought when well, you know Doug gets to be seen while uh, you know me Simon and, and Barbie Wild <laughs> over the, the female son was like what do you mean and you're still not putting me my face on film so yeah that was just a piss take basically but this was far more you know this is far closer to kind of what i feel you know kind of answered some of the questions that i had about that and also gave me the idea you know really helped me deal with the facts and you know i did actually get over myself within about a decade after (laughs) hellbound was released the idea of a child being in hell and growing up in hell because the other two cenobites revert back to being adults so the assumption is they were adults when they were they opened the box and became cenobite this is a child or somebody who looked a boy you know somebody who looks very young the hell is going on there so that was yeah that was kind of the but that is the origin it's dealing with things like that have you shared the origin story with clive yes yes he's read it he he likes it clive has always been very encouraging me of me writing when i worked on my one-man show i am monsters clive was very good about a giving me a quote advising me what I should be including and excluding and just I in fact got to so basically the story of I Am Monsters 2019 I did this one man show at the London Horror Festival of which I've been the patron a half a dozen well it's coming up for eight years now Mm -hmm. um the I did it there and then there an opportunity arose to take it to Las Vegas and do a performance with Clive in the audience and he was so he was so encouraging he was he's he, he enjoyed it he was really pleased with it and i know i know he's watched the other stuff as well so hoping to sound really doing a lot more writing than i do <laughs> yeah, i was gonna ask you you've got several stories short story collections like has fiction writing always been something a passion you wanted to pursue and just yeah. never had the time yes absolutely i think it's that thing of and it's something i've been trying to get back to recently I actually managed, you know, I stopped when the pandemic started. I just thought, I can't be writing horror now. This is just too depressing. I don't want to be thinking, because like many other, you know, when you create a character, it's like a real human leaving, like a real human breathing human being, as far as I'm concerned. Right. Good characters are. 
yeah, yeah. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, but he was properly. <laughs> yeah, I think when, when you write uh, as a writer, what I've found is it's when they a character surprises you. I think that's when you know that you've got something living and breathing. You've really imagined that, and it in, in many ways it's it's like acting. You've got to find that level of life in that person you are imagining. In the case of acting, trying to portray. So as I mentioned, I'd written. I'd been writing short stories and I had half a dozen of them. Yeah, about, actually, no, about three or four published back in the 1980s and 90s when I stopped because I left acting for a long time and, and got and went into computers, you know, which earned money. Um, <laughs> just, you know, <laughs> That's good. Yeah. <laughs> I had to pay the rent, which eventually became a mortgage. But that all stopped in 2012. And the first thing I wanted to do was go back to writing. And, and that's when the first collection of short stories came out but it just takes me forever it just takes me forever because i always get really distracted <laughs> it's like oh there's there's another pretty thing oh this just you know. you know a problem i always run into is when you're mid-story usually you have another idea that taps you on the shoulder and you're like oh that i want to write that now and then you just start a new story without finishing the other story yeah it's it's i, I, I the way i deal with things like that is ai write in longhand in pencil propelling mm. pencil because I just find it much smoother on the paper than Biro or anything else. I write on, so I have A4, which is kind of equivalent to your legal pads, which are, you know, um, the ones with four holes in that you can peel off and put in, in binders. So I write on the right-hand page on the alternate lines so that when I go back, I can write in between them, you know, cross stuff out and you know, rub out, just cross out and write in between lines. Then when I have another idea, it's seldom about another, it might be about another story, but it's usually about another bit of the story. Uh-huh. You know, that's going to be a, a, a 10 pages on, then I will, on the left-hand side, I will write an A and then write a big thing and then just remember that A means this bit or if I'm going, okay. to, if I'm going through editing, then I, then I need to put in a new section, then I'll write in B and then on the left-hand page, write B, and then start writing pages. Start writing on the left-hand page as much as I need to do. Okay, actually. Yeah, and that's, and that's always the first step before I sit down and write at the computer. I can write at the computer, but I find it easier to just keep going writing in pencil. I'd agree with that. Yeah, because if I'm in the computer, I want to go back and edit all the time. Yep. Because it's so easy to go back and all that it's not worth. I think you know, as I told you, just like you just have to keep going, keep yep. going to the end. Just write rubbish. Doesn't matter what it is. Just no one's going to see it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then I'll I'll take all of these scrawly, my ridiculously large handwriting. I can get four words on a line usually. If I'm <laughs> 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 like it's like oh, <laughs> huge great loops and 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 so on um i studied calligraphy when i was a teenager not that i'm a calligrapher by any manner of means but i love i love letter forms and so on and beautiful beautiful handwriting and i i get fascinated by fonts it's really i was sitting watching a youtube channel called legal eagle the other day because i'm Again, that's something that was always interested me is the law, courtroom dramas, right. a few good men, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I sort of just realized I was actually staring at the guy on the screen. I'm like, I'm actually paying more attention to your font 
than I am to the, not the typeface you're using. I'm thinking, gosh, that's really beautiful. I really like the, the font, the typeface that you're using, rather than what you're actually trying to tell me. I get, as I say, I get distracted so easily. Agreed. I can't type at the computer because there's too many distractions available on the computer, too many shiny buttons and pop-ups popping up. And <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you yeah. have to. Um, I suffer from tinnitus as well, so I have to have something to drown me out, but it's got to be music that is interesting, will keep me going. Right. It can't be too interesting because then I'll just It'll distract you. Off. It'll <laughs> It'll distract you. you know, I mean, I have certain things. When I was writing, because I used to write, um, as well as writing short stories, I used to write Hellraiser Nightbreed comics for Marvel. Then I would always put on Christopher Young's album of Hellraiser. Because all I have to do is to listen to the to that theme music, and I am right in the world of Hellraiser, uh, and that, you know I'm right there, thinking about all the different things in that world that that uh, Clive created. Um, but otherwise, it has it'll be it's most likely to be Sibelius or Mahler. I've discovered recently, possibly Eric Satie, the the piano pieces and so on just something it has it cannot have words right it has to be orchestral because if it's got words i'm going to start listening to the words um, and going off into the story of the song I do something very similar. I wouldn't go as far as to call it like method writing, but put on something that's ambient or instrumental that kind of helps you fit the mood of the story you're going for is usually what mm. I which is what sounds like what you do as well. Yeah, I mean, method I, writing, but it's more like setting the scene for yourself, yeah. trying to get yourself in the mood. Yeah. 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 And no, I mean, I've, I've spoken to writers who basically create playlists. The first thing they do is they will go, you know, if they're writing about a particular period, they will create a playlist mm-hmm. of all the songs they are going to listen you know and this thing will be 12 hours long so you know all of it just so that they've got that in the background i mean it, it makes sense as people will make playlists for their you know when they're working out so they can focus or when they're driving so they can focus so it only makes sense that they would do it so they can focus when they're doing their creative activities as well yeah yeah no absolutely absolutely you know music is such a powerful find a word to express what i'm trying to say but it it invokes yep. it invokes powerful emotions mm-hmm. um, yeah. and responses and memories uh, and, and so on so yeah also when you're uh, writing by hand something that helps me is when you finally transfer it to pc is sort of like a that is your editing process from the paper yeah. to the pc is now you're typing it back in the pc you're like oh well that's stupid i'll just leave that line out yeah or, you know yeah. It's an easier no, way to edit. Yeah, no, absolutely. So when, you're, when I'm transferring and I've got, a, I've got um, things that will hold up the, the books, by the time I'm doing copy typing from the book, so I've got it beside the screen when I'm actually typing it up onto the screen. Um, so, yeah, no, absolutely. What's written is very, very seldom the words that will actually appear. Uh, when I was writing the comics, I, I showed people... I mean, the amount to create a 20, in the good old days when you write, when I was writing comics using the Marvel method, which is basically a page to a page, because you're going to be possibly one and a half pages to a page of comic book, because you've only got six frames to play with. Right. Um, then you need a brief description, you need the dialogue, and then that's it. The rest goes to the artist, and it's all up to them. Um, you then 
that's fine. So to create those 20 odd pages, I'd probably go through about 60 or 70 pages of notes or story ideas or character notes or just like trying to whittle things down, throw things, just shoving things down on page, on, on paper. Um, and Not necessarily then, an outline, just ideas. Just literally just ideas. Gotcha. It's snaps of, you know, scraps of dialogue or something like that. Or as you were saying, <laughs> inevitably, an idea for another story. <laughs> um, something else, just so that it, you know, it's recorded because it goes, okay, well, that's not for this story, but that's a, another cool idea um, or something like that. So, the, yeah, all those things. Um, but also, I edit at least four or five times. Yeah. Um, before anybody else gets to see it. It's just constantly. Mind you, of course, in the days, uh, the horror of those days was I was just so bad at deadlines. So bad. Uh, oh, God, in those days, I had to send them off by um, FedEx. And the number of times a guy would be standing on my doorstep and the pages would be coming out of the printer. Wow. So keep him waiting on the doorstep five minutes. <laughs> I, I, it, just bear with me. It's, it's literally just coming out of the page. And he's turning out. Oh, my God. <laughs> And it's not like I didn't have 28, you know, a month between things. <laughs> but, you know, the first couple of weeks, was goofing off, thinking, I'm doing research. You're goofing off, Nick. So, yeah. When you're writing comics, do you have the art that's going to go with the episode? Or do you sketch it out yourself? Does that help you out? No. What I used to do was, as I was using Marvel method, which is basically you give the artist some an outline of the story and literally a panel description the dialogue that's all that's handed over to the artist the artist takes it creates the pencils you then get it back readjust the artwork because they haven't left enough space for your dialogue <laughs> yeah, i mean the gun is like okay that's not it. i'm like yeah okay where am i gonna put this word bubble um and then that you know we can go after the ink of the letterer and the colorist what i did do is because of course Oh, this was the fun thing is when I was writing uh, my own, I wrote short stories for Marvel for Nightbreed or either issues or short stories, issues of Nightbreed, short stories for Hellraiser. I also had my own monthly comic, uh, Warheads, which I was a uh, writer on. The great thing about that was in the US, you publish your comics monthly. In the UK, we publish weekly. Ooh nice yeah so what <laughs> that meant was because they were being published in the uk and they and in the us i had to have stories that would fit into five pages or parts of stories five pages so each us comic was four times a weekly issue of about five or six pages so there was that interesting challenge to deal with in terms of writing a monthly marvel comic though you knew which pages the adverts were going to appear on so you know you have the front cover inside front cover is going to be an advert and then you've got the you know the right hand page is your first splash page is your first page of your comic and you turn the page and you might have another advert and i can't remember quite how it worked i think they've cut it down from 20 to 20 pages now i know it's changed recently so basically i had a a grid that showed me on the pages on which pages are ran advert because obviously if you're going to have a reveal you want to make sure it's after you've turned a page so it's going to be at the top left right of the left hand page 
you're going to have a surprise or something that's going to be a reveal, that's where it's got to be. So it, it's kind of interesting way of what writing because it means, A, you have only a certain amount of space in which to tell your story. You know exactly where the rhythm points are. You know exactly where the surprises are going to be, your reveals are, or, you know, and the cliffhangers have to be. You, at the bottom right of each page, you've got to make sure that people want to turn the page. Exactly. So it is a, you know, I think comic writing is a is a master art as far as I'm concerned, because that kind of story structure. And so, I mean, obviously, the master as far as I'm concerned is Chris Claremont or Alan Moore. Um, these are the people whose comics I was reading you know, when I was writing. Yeah, Jamie Delano is one of my favorite comic mm. writers. And yeah. I have a John Constantine tattoo on my arm because of Jamie Delano and Alan Moore. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah i mean the wonderful you know other, other, but i think the two that most influenced me um were, were, were chris claremont uh, with chris claremont particularly for the x-men stuff those that that was always my favorite um it's, people have been asking me whether i'm going to be watching the Zack snyder just the lead you know Sorry, I'm a Marvel boy. I'm not a DC boy. I'm a yeah, plus you got to set aside like eight hours to watch it. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just schedule your whole day around. You're a busy man. Movie. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. And I like, I mean, great actors. I'm so pleased that you know it's done. I'm so pleased he's managed to get his artistic vision. I'm so pleased actors and creators of you know and all the all the different departments involved are being involved in getting work but but four hours is a lot of time to commit to a movie yeah yeah, I mean, that's yeah. All, it's... And, and, and you know this, i was watching a tv program this morning about me saying you know the great thing is no one would think of doing a four-hour movie expecting people to go to the cinema to sit and watch it no but because of streaming and pandemic and lockdowns and so on it does it feels more natural you can actually hit pause and go to the loo yeah and right back and have a meal or you know do or watch it over two nights or maybe three you can watch it episodically i guess yeah absolutely <laughs> if I, you know uh, i mean the, the, i remember going to see uh chitty chitty bang bang and the sound of music in the cinema you had intermissions in those days you know, these are like, they're only a couple of hour long movies, but you still had an intermission. Yeah, um, you need a strategic intermission. So people get antsy, you know? Yeah. And also <laughs> so they can sell you ice cream. Yeah. Sell <laughs> <laughs> you ice cream and popcorn and Kiora <laughs> drink and, uh, and all the good of. stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Is comic writing something that you would consider a return to should the opportunity arise? Somebody, funny enough, somebody asked me, I think, um, was asking me about it. I can't imagine. If somebody wanted to pay me to do it, I probably wouldn't say no because <laughs> it's another income stream. And, you know, actor, not really been able to do a great deal of acting in the last year and a half or going out to see folks. So, yeah, it would just depend on the project. It would depend right. on the project, but it's so long. I mean, it's so long since I picked up a comic to to read one. I've been doing other stuff, uh, and I feel far more interested in writing film, and uh, I would be in writing comics. If somebody, you know, if I wrote a film and then somebody said, "Well, would you like to adapt this for a comic?" Or somebody, you know, would really love your short story. You'd thought about adapting it for a comic. That would be interesting. Oh yeah, that would that would be be very interesting. But work for hire, I don't feel like I want to do that <laughs> again. 
So with your short story collections, uh, what monsters do in other people's darkness? Would you mm. say that there's themes with those two collections? Yeah, according to the people who read them, I must have had a really fucked up family life. Um, <laughs> because I seem to spend most of my time saying how terrible families are. And of course, the truth is that completely reverse. I have a wonderful family. I go really well with my family. And I have a lovely middle-class boy who just had a really nice upbringing. And when I had my struggles, like victim of bullying at school and so on. But in terms of a home life, you know, parents were comfortably off and there was always food on the table and, and so on. Just imaginative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, just evil-minded i think is the real <laughs> truth of these things <laughs> it's like what are the themes of my book i think what i really enjoy about writing is that you i want to make them as real as possible and then just twist one thing mm -hmm. and in the it's, it, okay there's going to be supernatural elements or there's going to be monstrous elements or just you know the you know what monsters do is all is mostly about the fact that people are bastards um and they don't treat other people decently so those, you know, those are the things i am fascinated by death um and what happens thereafter on the short stories and because i am <laughs> i've been promising this for nearly two years now honestly i am writing a third volume of short stories uh which will feature which will feature a reprint of the chatra story oh. um prayers of desire uh, and clive very kindly provided a cover for it. So it, you know, what happens after death and what is the experience of being alive and, and death and jealous ghosts and angry ghosts. And I personally don't believe in ghosts because I believe in reincarnation. But I like to imagine, you know, and but what if I'm wrong or what would it be like? What right. And how would people behave if they were put in a particular situation? I think that's what I think this is the real fun of storytelling, isn't it? It's like, right. okay, I've got this really cool character, now let's be really shitty to him and see how he behaves. <laughs> right. they, or she behaves, or they behave. Or, you know, that's the fascinating thing, because we're all, we're we all, I guess we all read or watch films or experience art to find out about the human condition. We want to learn how we would behave or how other people Behave. conflict is key yeah absolutely conflict is key i mean i love the fact that we all think we would be the hero we are all the heroes of our own story you know we cannot possibly be the bad guy nobody believes that they're the... actually that's not true many people <laughs> some people really enjoy the fact that they're the bad guy and they're kind of really interesting people to talk to sometimes but you wouldn't want to spend any time in their company certainly not in the woods so <laughs> you just tip don't go into the woods with a psychopath. Just Noted. look out for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> bad idea. Just such a bad idea. So, Nicholas, what are your favorite films? Regardless okay. of genre. It doesn't have to be horror. Just any films. Oh, any films. Okay. Uh, horror genre is going to be a Roger Corman, Vincent Price, Mask of the Red Death. I've spoken about that before. That is always just a film I, I come back to really, really enjoy. Recently, the film that I've kind of had the soundtrack on repeat, and we watched it again the other day, the other day, and that was me mostly in tears uh, <laughs> watching it, is um, The Greatest Showman, which I just think is wonderful. Um, and I don't understand why it doesn't have a much higher rating on IMDb, because I just think it's, it's joyous. It's absolutely joyous. It's not a documentary about the life of P.T. Barnum. It's taking the idea of being strange, the oddities, as they refer to the, you know, the bearded lady and her pals. It's great music. Uh, it's really just fun, fun music. 
um, which I got things in my head. So those are probably, and then I, then it's going to be something from Pixar. It's going to be Wally, Big Hero Six, best Big Brother in the entire world, as in Big Hero Six, and is is that what were we watching last night? The Lego Movie Two. Really enjoyed that lot that last night as well. <laughs> love lego movies like you know because everything is awesome and then and, and what I, I love about that film is you know the first film is all about fathers and sons the second movie is all about siblings getting on with each other oh, have you seen them i have not oh they're, they're wonderful they're i'll have to give films. them a watch yeah no they are definitely great films they're you know they are funny they are really, really funny as far as, you know, everyone has obviously had a really great time on the, on those films. So I'm just picturing I'm someone of... like messing with the lament configuration and inside the chatterers are watching up. Oh. <laughs> 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 <Yeah>. <laughs> That's funny. Well, Nicholas, uh, we're coming up on your hour. I do not want to keep you any longer than we have to. So what else do you have on the horizon? Where can folks find you? I know you have your own podcast. Tell us uh, where to find you and where to listen. Okay, so basically, um, if you head over to nicholasvince.com, you will find, uh, you'll find my shop. So obviously not being out to conventions, but if you want to buy autograph material, that's good, nicholasvince.com. You'll also find links there to the Chattering Hour, um, which is hosted by the Chris Rowe Management, uh, which is my manager. It's on their YouTube channel. That's where I've been chatting to the likes of Malcolm McDowell, Barbara Crampton, um, Suzanne Rocher, George Romero's um, ex-wife, um, John Harrison just went up on on Thursday. You know, he's the man who's behind the TV Dune um, miniseries uh, back at the beginning of the century. He's an extraordinary guy, and a, and also he directed uh, Clive Barker's Book of Blood. Um, Recent directed. Oh, we uh, talked to Brandon Braga from that film. He was a, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, that's because the new Hulu. This is the you know this is the film uh, from a few years ago. Um, so yeah, head, I st- that's the easiest thing to try and remember because it's my name. Uh, head over there, but you will find me there. I am on Facebook, probably on Facebook. More, um, I'm also on Instagram and um, uh, Twitter. Uh, mostly when I'm on Twitter, I'm retweeting. Tweets. <laughs> <laughs> to for the green party um because during the pandemic i became part i actually started i felt i actually for the first time in my life i'm going to join a political party and so i joined the green party and um we'll be out leafleting because we've got elections coming up over over here uh, local elections and london mayor elections and so on so you'll you'll find me retweeting about environmental issues and so on because Let's face it, there isn't much time is running out, folks, and we really need to rethink. Those are important issues. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, really important issues. And I think people are really waking up to this fact. Um, Hopefully. Yeah, I, I think, you know, particularly the people who are suffering uh, are really waking up to, you know, the people who are actually suffering from the monstrous uh, wildfires in your country and Australia and the flooding in Australia. You know, it's just like saying, We've got to think about how we, you know, governments, of course, because they're mostly uh, run by and, you know, government for vested interests of oil, etc., are very slow to react. Um, 
So yeah, no, sorry. I'm just I'm just going to take over your podcast. And it's fine. Rant now. <laughs> yeah, we're okay with that. Less work for me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, NicholasVince.com. Um, I had huge fun putting that website together just before Christmas into, in, into the new year. I had to learn WordPress for the first time. I said, please visit my website because I did spend many hours putting that together. <laughs> yes, sir. I'll make sure to link it in the description and everything. It's been a pleasure talking to you, my friend. And our Thanks doors are always open to you. Good. Uh, good. Also, Bye. all right, Nicholas, it's been a pleasure. You have good. a great day. Good luck on your interview later. Thank you very much. Indeed. <laughs>